Greetings, and welcome back to the Highest Court Report. As always, I'm your host, Connor, and thank you for joining me yet again. Today, we're going to take a brief look at a possible, though likely, coming battle between the Biden administration's ambitious regulatory plans and SCOTUS's hyper-conservative bench. From tax cuts, rollbacks for the wealthy, environmental protections sure to draw ire from the fossil fuel industry, to pro-union policy and protection for immigrants, people of color, and the poor. It's a grab bag of demographic-centric politics. Let's get into it. This is Episode 6, The Coming Storm. One of Justice Antonin Scalia's final acts before his passing was to strike down President Obama's plan to stave off climate crisis. On February 9, 2016, the last Tuesday of Justice Scalia's life, the Supreme Court handed down an unexpected order announcing a stay of the Environmental Protection Agency's carbon emissions rules for many power plants. The vote was 5-4 among party lines, with Scalia joining his fellow conservatives in the majority. The environmental regulations blocked by this order were commonly known as the Clean Power Act, and they were the Obama administration's most ambitious effort to fight climate change itself. Had the Clean Power Act and actual plan itself taken effect, the EPA predicted that by 2030, it would have reduced overall carbon dioxide emissions from utility power plants 32% from where they were in 2005. But the Clean Power Act never actually took effect. Though the Supreme Court's order halting the plan was temporary, Donald Trump's 2016 victory all but ensured that it would not be revived. Even if the Trump administration hadn't actually replaced this Obama-era policy with a significantly weaker rule, the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to fill Scalia's vacant seat signaled that the Supreme Court would be highly likely to strike down the Clean Power Plan permanently if given the chance. The problem for Democrats is that the legal defeat of the Clean Power Plan is likely not a one-off. This fight over the federal government's power to address a slow-moving catastrophe, i.e. climate change, is just one battle in a multi-front war over federal agencies' power to regulate. As Steve Bannon, then the White House chief uh, strategist, told the Conservative Political Action Conference a month after Trump took office, one of the Trump administration's primary goals would be, quote, deconstruction of the administrative state, end quote. Enter the Roberts Court, fortified by Trump's appointees. With six conservative justices, the court has the votes that it actually needs to make Bannon's goal a reality. And at least five members of the Supreme Court have already endorsed a plan to erase much of the executive branch's authority itself. It wasn't always this way, to be sure. In the late 1980s, Justice Scalia was one of the court's staunchest defenders of a strong administrative state. Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush delivered three landslide victories in a row to Republicans, and the GOP was at the apex of its ability to gain power the old-fashioned way by winning elections. 
So conservatives benefited from court decisions that gave the Reagan and Bush administrations a rather broad leeway to set federal policy. Both administrations could use this leeway to deregulate. But the Wright's approach to federal agencies shifted drastically during the Obama administration. With the GOP's grip on the presidency waning at the very same time that they had a very firm hold on the judiciary itself, conservatives had an obvious interest in increasing the judiciary's power to strike down new rules pushed by federal agencies. By Obama's second term, the Conservative Federalist Society's National Lawyers Convention became a showcase of proposals to deconstruct the administrative state itself. All of this culminated in Justice Neil Gorsuch's opinion in Gundy v. United States 2019, which called for strict new limits on federal agencies and for the judiciary to strike down many federal regulations as unconstitutional. Though Gorsuch's opinion was a dissent, that is, he didn't yet have a majority sign on to it, five justices on the court have now largely endorsed his framework, which relies on a conservative legal principle known as non-delegation. In other words, it may only be a matter of time before the court starts striking down Biden administration regulations that rely on legal arguments that would have been treated as nonsense just a decade ago. At least since the Franklin Roosevelt administration, federal agencies have had quite wide latitude to implement the policies the president campaigned upon. And agency-initiated regulations answers such important questions as for instance, who has access to healthcare and how much workers are paid for their labor, as well as a wide range of environmental questions that go well beyond the Clean Power Plan. So, no matter what issue you care about, there is likely a federal regulation that shapes the nation's approach to that issue. If the Supreme Court strips the government of much of its power to promulgate these regulations, it could effectively grind down the Biden presidency, not to mention dismantle much of American law. Now, before we can understand how the Supreme Court might remake the balance of power between the executive and the judiciary, it's important to understand what it means for a federal agency to regulate. As a general rule, Congress can regulate businesses in two ways. The most straightforward approach is simply to command industries to conduct their business in a certain manner. Thus, if Congress wants to reduce certain polluting emissions, for example, it could pass a law that orders power plants to use a particular technology, for instance, that reduces emissions. However, Congress is a slow-moving body with a serious amount of inertia, and federal laws are difficult to pass. If, in the 1970s, Congress had commanded power to use these best emissions to reduce technology that existed at the time, it could have potentially locked these plants into using obsolete tech that is vastly inferior to the technology available now. At a minimum, Congress would have struggled to stay on top of new developments and to update this law as new methods of reducing emissions were invented. 
Fortunately, Congress can also regulate business in a second way. It can pass a law that lays out a broad federal policy, but leaves the details of how to implement that policy up to a federal agency. Oftentimes, such delegation means giving that agency a fair amount of authority or autonomy to determine how businesses operate, so long as the agency uses its authority to advance the political goal enacted by Congress. Take this example. When Congress wrote the Clean Air Act, it made sure that the rules governing power plants could evolve as technology improves. So under this law, power companies were required to update their systems for reducing emissions to ensure that they meet the same, quote, degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of the best system of emission reduction, end quote, that the currently exists, while also accounting for factors such as cost. Congress also gave the job of figuring out what the best system of emission reduction is at any given moment to the administrator of the EPA. As a practical matter, that means that EPA employees who are experts on environmental regulation and the energy industry itself, they will have to study which new technology is available and will update the rules governing power plants as the technology evolves. And that's exactly what the EPA did when it created the Clean Power Plan. EPA determines that to achieve the best system of emission reduction, at least some energy companies would need to shift from fairly dirty coal-fired electricity production to cleaner methods such as natural gas, or to renewable methods that result in no emissions whatsoever. Rules like the Clean Air Act, which are promulgated by a federal agency pursuant to a federal law, permitting them to do so are known as regulations. When Bennon, Steve Bennon, that awesome guy, spoke, spoke of deconstructing the administrative state, or when the Federal Society showcased proposals to diminish the executive branch's authority, a major thrust of that project itself involves stripping agencies of much of their ability to regulate. Ideally, laws like the Clean Air Act make complex lawmaking possible without having to sacrifice democratic accountability. Regulation allows our laws to be both democratic and dynamic. Such laws are democratic because the goals of federal policy, goals such as ensuring that power plants use the best emission reduction technology available, are still set by the people's elected representatives in Congress. However, they are dynamic because it allows federal rules to be updated without requiring Congress to enact a new law every time a new innovation is developed. Yet, despite these advantages, the very idea that Congress should be free to delegate power in this way has many enemies within the conservative legal movement. In a 2016 opinion, for example, then Judge Gorsuch wrote that two foundational Supreme Court decisions preserving agencies' ability to regulate permit executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. After his elevation to the Supreme Court, 
Gorsuch called for strict new limits on the federal government's power to regulate in his Gundy opinion. And since then, five members of the court's Republican-appointed majority have signaled, albeit in two different cases, that they agree with Gorsuch's plans to restrict agency power. Gorsuch and his allies do not simply view Congress's power to delegate rulemaking authority to agencies as undesirable. They view broad delegations of power as inconsistent with the Constitution itself. And their narrow version of federal power has profound implications for workers, consumers, patients, and the environment. Now, there's a name for this vision that Gorsuch and the court's conservatives are invoking. Non-delegation. Non-delegation is the idea that the Constitution places strict limits on Congress's ability to delegate power to federal agencies. Although the Supreme Court briefly wielded the non-delegation doctrine to strike down New Deal policies that gave a simply extraordinary amount of regulatory power to President Roosevelt. This doctrine has largely laid dormant for many generations. The court's decisions prior to Gundy emphasize just how reluctant courts should be to strike down laws permitting agencies to regulate. Indeed, long-standing Supreme Court precedents holds that Congress has a broad authority to delegate power. As the court explained in Mistrata v. United States, 1989, quote, In our increasingly complex society, replete with ever-changing and more technical problems, Congress simply cannot do its job absent an ability to delegate power under broad general directives, end quote. Thus, the Supreme Court explained Congress may delegate regulatory power to agencies so long as it shall lay down by legislative act an intelligible principle to which the person or body authorized to exercise the delegated authority is directed to conform. While Reaganism was ascendant, conservative judges were often the biggest cheerleaders for broad judicial deference to federal agencies, frequently justifying such deference as a way to keep an unelected judiciary from undercutting democracy. As then-judge Ken Starr, and I'm pretty sure we all know who Ken Starr is at this point, wrote in a 1986 article on administrative law, quote, in part because federal judges are not directly accountable to any electorate, I believe they have a duty voluntarily to exercise judicial restraint, end quote. But these conservative calls for judicial restraint have since been replaced with bold demands for judicial intervention against federal agencies once Reaganism faded and Obama's liberalism gained steam. A new conservative approach to administrative law, which seeks to concentrate power within a judiciary dominated by Republican appointees, is now the dominant ideology among conservatives. In early October 2019, just a few days before Justice Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the United States Supreme Court, the eight remaining justices heard Gundy v. United States, a case brought by a convicted sex offender who challenged his conviction for failing to register as a sex offender 
when he moved to New York. Herman Gundy went after a federal law that allowed the Justice Department, a federal agency, to determine which sex offenders had to register with their state government. Gorsuch used his opinion in Gundy to criticize the long-standing rule laid out in cases like Mistrata. Warning that permitting Congress to delegate power to agencies risks giving those agencies, quote, unbound policy choices. Gorsuch proposed a vague new limit on Congress's power to delegate. Now, according to Gorsuch, delegations of power to agencies must be struck down unless Congress put forth standards sufficiently definite uh, to enable Congress, the courts, and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed. This vague new standard is rather inconsistent with the framers' understanding of the Constitution. In fact, early American lawmakers, many of whom were involved in drafting the Constitution, delegated tremendous power to the executive branch officials. Perhaps more concerning, however, is that Gorsuch's rule would effectively consolidate an enormous amount of power within the judiciary itself. As a practical matter, when the Supreme Court hands down a vague and sort of open-ended legal standard like the one Gorsuch articulated in his Gundy opinion, the court is sort of shifting power to itself. What does it mean for a statute to be, quote, sufficiently definite and precise, end quote, that the public can ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed. The answer is, and ultimately the Supreme Court will decide what the vague language actually means. The court will gain a broad new power to strike down federal regulations on the grounds that they exceed Congress's power to delegate this authority. Now, in theory, that could mean that federal regulations will simply receive more scrutiny, for instance, from an impartial jury or judiciary. But in practice, the judiciary is only as good as the judges who staff it. If five justices get behind it, for instance, the non-delegation doctrine would give a Republican supermajority on the Supreme Court the ability to veto nearly any regulation handed down by a Democratic administration. It should be noted that Gorsuch's opinion in Gundy was a dissent. The opinion was joined only by Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Clarence Thomas. But Justices Alito and Kavanaugh have both signaled in other opinions that they share Gorsuch's uh, desire to revive the non-delegation doctrine. And more recently, in Little Sisters v. Pennsylvania, 2020, five justices signed on to an opinion by Justice Thomas, which strongly suggests that many of the Affordable Care Acts, the ACA, uh, provisions requiring health insurers to provide a minimum level of coverage to their cons to their customers or consumers are unconstitutional under the non-delegation doctrine. Now, Little Sisters dealt with a provision of the ACA following federal agencies, specifically the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and the Treasury, 
to determine which forms of, quote, preventative care and screenings, end quote, for women must be covered by health insurers. The agencies had previously determined that contraceptive care must be covered. Justice Thomas disagreed, however, and his majority opinion strongly suggested that this provision of the ACA violated the non-delegation doctrine. He accused Congress of giving, quote, virtually unbridled discretion to decide what counts as preventative care and screenings, end quote, to a federal agency. Thomas's decision laid the groundwork for the Supreme Court to eventually strike down the requirement that health insurers cover birth control and possibly other similarly worded provisions of Obamacare requiring coverage of immunizations and pediatric care, for instance. Indeed, in late February of last year, or this year, rather, a federal judge in Texas cited Little Sisters to suggest that multiple provisions of the ACA may be actually unconstitutional under the non-delegation doctrine. And it won't be just the ACA. Essentially, any regulation pushed during the Biden presidency dealing with a wide range of matters from the fight against climate change to the protection of workers could be vetoed by a Republican Supreme Court under this doctrine. Now, let's go back and take a closer look at the constitutional arguments that are being espoused by these conservative judges and legal scholars to support the theory of non-delegation, because upon close examination, these arguments appear to be quite weak. First, let's review the basics real quick. The Constitution gives Congress the legislative power. Meanwhile, the president and the various federal agencies that the president presides over are given the executive power. The legislative power, according to Gorsuch, is the power to, quote, adopt generally applicable rules of conduct governing future actions by private persons, end quote. Proponents of non-delegation argue that the Constitution places strict limits on Congress's ability to delegate this legislative power to agencies which are merely tasked with executing the law. Proponents of the non-delegation doctrine often quote a passage from the famous political philosopher John Locke, who wrote that, quote, the legislative cannot transfer the power of making laws to any other hands for it being but a delegated power from the people. They who have it cannot pass it over to others. However, there are many problems with this account of Congress's ability to delegate power. For one thing, it mis misunderstands it. Locke, uh, as a law professor, uh, Julian Davis Mortensen and Nicholas Bagley note, Locke draws a, a distinction between the legislature's ability to transfer power versus delegating power. Transferring a power requires a permanent alienation. That is, for Congress to transfer legislative power, it would have to give up that power forever to some other person or body. But Locke raised no objection to a legislative body delegating a power. 
meaning that lawmakers may assign the actual ability to make certain binding rules to an agency so long as the legislature retains that ability to take that power back. Indeed, if anything, Locke's quote undercuts the argument uh, for non-delegation because it recognizes that the legislative power has already been delegated once to the legislature itself. Locke describes the power to make laws as, quote, a delegated power from the people, end quote. That is, it is the people, not Congress, that have the apparent power to make rules that bind the whole of society. When the Constitution created Congress, it delegated the people's power to make laws to that Congress. And Congress may, in turn, delegate a portion of that power to federal agencies. Now, Congress's early history supports this reading of the Constitution. As the very first Congress enacted numerous laws, giving vast discretion to other government officials. For example, it allowed officials overseeing the Northwest Territory to, quote, adopt and publish in the district such laws of the original states, criminal and civil, as may be necessary and best suited to the circumstances of the district, end quote. And if delegated Cong Congress's entire power to provide patents to investors or to executive branch officials, allowing the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, or the Attorney General, for instance, to grant these patents so long as they deem the invention or discovery sufficient, useful, or important. Now, the first Congress didn't simply give executive branch officials the power to issue licenses that would allow merchants to trade with Native American tribes. It also allowed the executive to promulgate regulations that would govern license holders, quote, in all things touching the said trade and intercourse, end quote. The first course, to be fair, had to allow, in, in essence, the president to identify wounded or disabled soldiers and to place them on the list of invalids, as they called it, of the United States at such a rate of pay and under such regulations as shall be directed by the President of the United States for the time being. And it delegated, quote, any common law court of record, end quote, the power to grant citizenship to any free white person, white person, right? <laughs> who resided in the country for two years and provided the court that was satisfied that the new citizen is a person of good character. So the framers understood that the Constitution to allow Congress to, they allowed them to grant this broad authority to federal agencies. And the position outlined by Gorsuch's opinion in Gundy and Thomas's opinion in Little Sisters is kind of difficult to square with this history. But in the Supreme Court of the United States, history and constitutional texts matter quite little if a party has five votes. And the non-delegation doctrine almost certainly has five votes, to be frank. 
President Biden will hardly be the first president to face lawsuits challenging his administration's regulations. That's never been the case. But he's likely to be the first president since Roosevelt to face a judiciary that's so eager to rein in agency power. Now, thank you again for joining me. Uh, next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the SCOTUS docket's uh, intentions are. Uh, we're going to look at, sadly, an abortion case. And we're going to see whether or not the Supreme Court, as it stands, will rest on its laurels or will actually be able to make things happen for this country. Thank you again for joining me. My name is Connor, as always, and I appreciate everyone joining us today. Um, this is the Highest Court Report, and this is Connor signing off. Have a great day. <laughs>